From the Bill Moyers Archive, Faith and Reason, filmed at World Pen Voices Festival in 2006. Now adapted for audio. I've never thought of the church as a place for winners. I've always thought of the church as a place for losers. I don't understand these super churches that talk about Christ as a winner. Christ was a loser in this world. Richard Rodriguez talks about looking death in the face and listening for God in the desert. That's in this episode of Faith and Reason. Hello, I'm Bill Moyers, and I'm pleased you've joined us. Richard Rodriguez was in New York to attend the Penn Writers Festival on Faith and Reason. A devout believer, he openly acknowledged the source of his inspiration. What we do as writers connects us to the magical, the mysterious, and for many of us, the religious, that is the transcendental. The son of poor Mexican immigrant parents, Rodriguez writes from a storehouse of memories and images, including the crucifix over his childhood bed and the icons of his parochial school. He became a master of the personal essay. His memoir, Hunger of Memory, is used widely in schools and colleges. Days of Obligation and Argument with My Mexican Father was a finalist for a Pulitzer in nonfiction. And in Brown, he anticipates the changing complexion of America. Richard Rodriguez has lived through a close call with renal cancer and surgery that had him looking right at death through the eyes of faith. Richard Rodriguez, when you were lying on that gurney, thinking that you might die, were you afraid? You know, I'm going to tell you something which I don't normally talk about in public. Something happened to me which I will merely say as plainly as I can. I was overwhelmed by a sense of peace that was so profound that I could have almost levitated. I've never felt so light and so carefree as I did at that moment. A lightness of being? A lightness of being. And it was shocking to me that I was as joyful in that moment as I was. By the time they took me into the surgery, I was giddy. That wasn't the anesthesia. It wasn't the <laughs> anesthesia. And in fact, I was expected to go into intensive care afterwards, and I, I didn't need to. And I was expected to stay in the hospital for five to six days. I left after two days. I still don't know how to account for it, except that I do account for it. It was the power of prayer. What I tell other friends of mine who are not religious is that I faced this prospect of my death with some calm. What I tell people who have prayed for me is that you made a enormous difference in my life and you consoled me in ways that I did not expect. Why did you use a different language for talking to the people who are not believers, as you say? Well, you learn in America to speak two ways. You learn in public discourse not to be very specific about your religious life. It is the general agreement that we will not talk about these things this way. We'll not talk about levitating. We'll not talk about this overwhelming experience of peace. Or if we talk about it, we'll find a secular way of doing it that will not be offensive to people of no belief. So that you go through life with these alternate voices, essentially. I want to come back to that lightness of being. What lies behind that metaphor, the lightness of being? What I discovered in that experience of being on that gurney is that I was able to face death. And I did not resist death. 
and I was liberated as I've never been liberated by any other experience in my life. I was free. There was regret to be leaving people I love. The thought of that was deeply painful to me. But there was some other realization that I was free. I had been with dying people over the last 20 years. Mostly from AIDS, right? Mostly from AIDS. My closest friend died of ovarian cancer a few years ago. And I have recently helped my parents die. But it is one thing to help someone else die. It is another thing when they put that little identifying bracelet on your wrist. And then you belong to a different nation. You belong to the nation of the wounded. The nation of the... The wounded. I had never experienced a broken body before. I have a peasant's body, which is reliable, not graceful, but strong, and I could take it for granted. And suddenly I was wounded. And suddenly the doctor says to you after the operation, it looks promising. Come back in six months, and then again in six months, and then again in six months. And so far it looks good. But I tell friends of mine that I will always belong on the other side of the river now. I will always belong with the nation of the wounded because what I saw when I was there is how easy it is to change one's place in this world, to change one's passport and to belong with them. When I see people who are injured or in wheelchairs now or people who are obviously sick, I feel one of them now. Even though my body is apparently healed, I feel also psychologically wounded. What a tragedy that it takes something like that for any of us to be reminded of the frailty and commonality of our humanity. I don't know whether it's possible to, you know, I've helped people at moments of death and I still don't know whether, and I help people through great pain, but not experiencing their pain, trying to console them from pain. But when you become the person that is being held and you become the person whose brow is wiped, that is a completely different experience. And I'm sorry to say that my writer's imagination was never able to make that transference until I actually lived it. Bear with me for a moment. If you had died, do you think you would have seen the face of God? I think I would have been in the presence of God. And I think I would have been filled with great peace. I think the discovery at that level, at the level of physical or sensual detail, is going to be shocking and surprising. I believe that to be the case. But do I think I would have seen the face of God? I think that God would have seen my face is probably the easier thing to say. Are you betraying reason when you pray? No, I'm acknowledging that reason has only some functions in my life and not others. Reason has a sister. uh, She's very beautiful, but she has a very ugly name. Her name is Unreason. And she's the friend of writers she has been a friend of writers since the very beginning. She's unreason is the unreason. muse of writers? That's right. And to love unreason is to trust intuition, is to trust the transcendental, is to trust the essential mystery of life, is to trust also that emotional part of our life that is not reasonable. For example, love. Love is not reasonable. Love defies reason. And insofar as writers are interested in those emotions, that darkness, those shadows, We are not in league with reason. We are in league with reason's sister, unreason. When I write, I don't betray reason. I trust myself to other motives. I trust intuition. I trust mystery. 
I trust coincidence. I trust these areas that reason doesn't teach me very much about. But insofar as reason is reasonable, reason should let me be promiscuous too in that way. Reason should let me be more than what she can give me. There was a recent study of heart bypass patients and as one of their ranks, I'm always interested in these studies, but it said that heart bypass patients who knew that they had been prayed over by other people had no better a rate of recovery than the other cohort who were not prayed over. That's reason talking. <laughs> and I, all I can tell you is that my experience was not that. And this is my unreasonable experience was transcendent. What is prayer for you? For me, prayer is kind of most deeply a sense of my vulnerability and my openness to the divine presence. It is a very difficult giving up of my selfhood, of my I-ness in favor of something larger than me and in opening myself up to this other reality. It's very hard to achieve. First person singular, but you said you ask other people to pray for you when yes, you were heading towards surgery. That's well, so different. I, you, you see, I, I never think of my religion as being something that I choose. I think in some way it's something that it chooses me. I mean, people have asked me for many years, you know, how can you be a Catholic when you were also a gay man? How could I not be a Catholic? It's not something that I choose. It, in some sense, it's chosen me. It feels larger than me. It feels like they're asking me, how can you be your parents' son? I mean, it's nothing that I chose. It's something that I believe encompasses me in some but that's sense. A, that's a perplexing question to me because what you're saying is I belong to this church that institutionally condemns me. Yes. Institutionally that doesn't accept me. But also consoles me. That also, at some level, it feeds me. That also I own it is as much my church as it is the Pope's church. And I never forget that. I have the difficulty to. The Pope it. doesn't agree with you. Well, Does he? Does I think he, he might. I think he, would he say that? I would think that he would see himself as a child of God no more special than I am. But wouldn't he see you as a sinner? Yes, as I see him. You in see many, the Pope in, as a sinner. In many ways as a sinner, yes. And one accepts that in a complicated family, you accept yeah. parents. <laughs> it is parents very complicated, children. Richard. And there is love and there is disagreement and there is anger and there is all the difficulty of that relationship. I do feel that the church is not something I chose, but it continually chooses me. You're listening to author Richard Rodriguez and Bill Moyer's 2006 Faith and Reason Conversation. What do you recognize in yourself now when you go to church? I always sit by myself in a corner of the church. I feel at odds with the community. I feel that in some sense, because I am a barren man, I am childless. In a church that celebrates family is one of the central mysteries of the church. There's a ceremony at various times where husbands and wives renew their vows and we all applaud. And, and here are all these solitary people sitting there watching a minority population now, the husband and wife in San Francisco renewing their vows, sometimes with embarrassment in front of all of us. I feel in some sense that I'm at odds with the church, that I'm... Well, you are at odds with the church. That I'm a sinner, that I am a loser within the eyes of the church. And then I think to myself, those are all the preconditions for why I should be in church. <laughs> those are all the reasons why. This church is for losers. Come know? unto me, all you who... Exactly. I've never thought of the church as a place for winners. I've always thought of the church as a place for losers. I don't understand these super churches that talk about Christ as a winner. Christ was a loser in this world. And 
I feel very much at home with a religion of loss. Is that what you meant when you wrote in your memoir, quote, the resolution of my spiritual dilemma, if there is to be one before death, will have to take place where it began, among persons who do not share my religious convictions. What I mean by that, I guess, is that here I am talking, I would guess the majority of people listening to this conversation are not of my faith. The majority of people who've read my books are not of my faith. The conversations I have in the day, by and large, are among people who are not of my faith. I grew up in a medieval village. I went to a Catholic school. The only people I knew were Catholics. The neighbors, the so-called non-Catholics, were people I was polite to and so forth. I didn't know them. Little by little, that medieval world has given way. And then the boy finds himself more and more moving to a world in which you do not assume, you do not assume that you pray together when you go to college. In fact, there is no prayer together. You go to a Catholic college now and there's barely a crucifix on the wall. I asked a Jesuit once at a university in Chicago whether this was a Catholic university anymore. I think it was Loyola. And he said, beats me. He said, <laughs> <laughs> well, it beats me too, you know. And I think to myself, that consolation on Fridays during Lent of going to school and going to the Stations of the Cross, the consolation at funerals, going to sing the great hymns of sorrow. As a seventh grade class, you would go together. That consolation, the day would begin with the morning offering. The day ends with the act of hope, which is a prayer at the end of the day. There is this ritual to, before lunch, when the bell rings, everyone stands up to say the Angelus. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Ghost. Those prayers divided the hours of the day. And then suddenly there were no more. Suddenly my day was a silent day. Suddenly the church spire is silenced because the neighbors are complaining that the bell wakes them up on Sunday morning. Suddenly you live in a world that does not share that rhythm, those prayers, those consolations, those sounds. Are you closer today to Protestant Christianity than you are to those memories of the Catholic Church? Well, the question is, is my Catholic Church closer to Protestant Christianity? And I think it is. I'm deeply entranced by high liturgical traditions, the Orthodox, for example, but I find myself at home with many religious traditions. And when the cantor at Temple Emmanuel, not far from my house, begins to sing, I am transported. That voice and that prayer embraces me. September 11th did not alienate me from Muslims. In some sense, it forced me to recognize my tie to Islam. We all come out of the desert. We believe in the same desert God. As more and more I thought about it, as more and more I was impelled myself to a literal journey to the desert, I realized that in the presence of other people of faith, there is a closeness that I feel in many ways, and I recognize myself in them, yes. You said you want a, a journey to the desert. Yes. You're going back in a couple of weeks? Going back in a week, yes. I guess maybe as a Christian, I'm always called to the desert. Maybe that's one of the things that Christ calls us to the desert. This landscape, almost lunar, so inhospitable. It occurred to me that there is some significance to the fact that this is not forest. This is not a jungle. This is not the seashore. This is a landscape with its own particularity. Well, extreme, and, extreme hot, hot and, and cold. cold. Loneliness. Loneliness. Uh, uh, water the, becomes salvation. It, Hallucinations, indeed. mirages. Yes, an oasis, which is both our beginning and our conclusion, which is both Eden and paradise the tribalism that the desert encourages, these aspects of the ecology seem to me to be somehow important, and that's what I'm going to search right now. What happens to you there? 
I feel part of a very ancient pilgrimage that the people who have been on that desert, the people I so deeply admire, Moses, John the Baptist, Christ, Abraham, Abraham, Jesus, Jesus, Muhammad. Muhammad. These are people who have walked on that desert. And to be in the desert in daylight, in that stunning daylight, is also to be blinded by the desert. And you realize how much of the experience of God in the desert is heard rather than seen. These eyes are almost blinded by the light. But in the desert, everything becomes the God whispers because he's heard in the wind. And there is this sense of God not as overwhelming thunderstorm, but God is a whisper. God is coming close. And there is this pilgrimage that I engage in as a Christian, which necessarily connects me to Jews and Muslims. They are also on that desert. And to feel myself there is to feel myself connected September 11th or no September 11th. I am part of a pilgrimage that they are also on. And that's the testimony of my life that I did not expect that September 11th would draw me to that landscape. I thought, like most Americans, I recoil and feel separate. But I feel now this other sense of common quest. The desert may end up describing to future generations the landscape of the soul probably better than any other landscape that we have. The landscape of the soul. Oh, the soul. Yes. The desert has created tribalism because people need each other. They cannot be by themselves. But that tribalism also becomes, desert tribalism has become the source of conflict between the great. And it it also becomes. I versus the we. It also becomes a source of great consolation. It also becomes a source of community and becomes a source of faith. As a Catholic, as a Christian, I do not believe singly. I believe in a community. I belong to a community. I don't invent my Christianity. I sent to it and join a community. So I belong to a tribe too. I mean, this is a human motive, Bill. This is not something, you know, that we sort of live with or live without. I mean, the vast loneliness in our American society is based on the fact that we are so unable to embrace this we, this ancient pronoun, which is so basic not only to religion, but to communities, as you say, on the desert floor. And yet there is this great preamble to the Constitution, we the people. What's happened to it? America is torn between pronouns, it seems to me. Between pronouns? Yes. On the one hand, we are people who give our allegiance as a people, paradoxically, as a we. We give our allegiance to the freedom of the individual to be I. You are free to be yourself. You are free to think as you want. You are free to believe as you want. You are free to be who you are. And you don't object to that. I do not object to it. I cling to it. I am gay. I'm an American. I'm a middle-aged man. I'm a writer. These are all sentences formed out of that grammatical But are you lonely for community? Are you lonely for the tribe? Are you lonely for we? We also belong to Oriental religions, the religions of the desert. And these are not religions of the I. These are religions fundamentally of the we. Protestantism comes closest because it forms itself in the Reformation during this grammatical transformation between the we and the I. Protestantism, with its freedom from the priesthood, with its insistence that you have a right to the text 
as much as Padrecito in, in Mexico, the priest telling you what it means, that your freedom is valid. Protestantism is, is much the religion of the eye as, as Christianity is able to develop, it seems to me. But even within Protestantism, there's this enormous loneliness that gets consoled with these services where everybody's holding hands and singing together. I always thought that the reason Protestants sang so well is because they were so lonely. And Catholics who lived with the assurance of we didn't bother to sing at all because we knew that the priest was praying in our name and that we belonged to this larger we community. What we're having now is, as Americans, as we feel this threat from Islam, is this consolation of our religious traditions, that we are communal people. And more now than ever before, it seems to me, Americans are hungering for this communal assurance, even to the point of saying that America is a Christian country, even to the point of saying that we mustn't be afraid of our religiosity, that this is key to who we are as people. You speak with such an optimistic note in your voice, Richard, and yet I know you think of yourself as living still on Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion, living on the day of the suffering, not on the day of the resurrection, Easter. There's a sadness in your writing, a sense of great loss. I think, I've said this in print, I think that sad cultures have better foods than optimistic cultures. <laughs> <laughs> I think optimistic cultures like the United States have better jails than sad cultures. <laughs> but Mexico has better beer than the United States has and better fiestas than our three-day weekends. I think sadness is not antithetical to happiness. I find within the sorrow of Mexico great cheerfulness. I find within the apparent optimism of America enormous sadness. This country seems to me so, so desperately sad, so lonely. A culture that raises children to leave home is so desperately lonely. People are looking to connect to other people and going online to try to find their wife or their boyfriend or someone to listen to them, some connection, some human connection. And this desperation, you know, I need to take this call now because it may be someone that's really going to change my life. Everybody wandering at 45 degree angles down the street, you know, <laughs> listening. Or oh, the click, click, click of the lonely yes. solitude of the... It's, you know, this country is not a happy country. Mexico seems much more cheerful by comparison. And yet it celebrates the Day of the Dead. It celebrates the Day of the Dead. It honors the dead. It brings the dead into the house. It feeds the dead their favorite foods. It gives them their favorite cigarettes that happen to also cause the lung cancer. It takes petals of flowers to the cemetery so that the dead know how to come back and forth. It gets drunk among tombstones. It sings with the dead. It sits through the night. This is a sad culture, but this is also a culture of some animate life. And you realize that there is some motion, there is some energy at play now in the world that is as fierce as anything I've ever seen before. The South is moving, and the South may the be... The southern part of the globe you're talking about. That's right. Yes. I've been to Tijuana, Mexico. I meet three young men who belong to a group called Victory Outreach, which is an evangelical Protestant group. Praise the Lord, they're coming to the United States. One of the boys tells me to convert the United States to Christianity. <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> illegal, illegally coming, I should tell you. We are watching this migration from the South. We call Hispanic, but they look Indian to me. The evangelicals are going from the United States to Europe to convert Europe to Christianity. Nowhere in the course of history do we understand these dynamics because we established that somehow Europe evangelized the United States. So how could it be that this procedure now is reversed? How could it be that three brown boys 
that belong to this group called Victory Outreach who resemble Indians more than they do Hispanics. How could it be that they're going to Frankfurt and Paris and London and Amsterdam to convert Europe? What kind of world is that where the South begins to convert the North? We are borrowing each other's ideas. We are being influenced by one another. We are taking the Methodist housewife who says about one thing she is religious in her day, and that's her yoga class. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are borrowing, we are absorbing, we are learning the wisdom of Buddhism now in ways that we never expected to. At the same time, there is this other impulse in us. As the world grows more complicated, there is going to be this impulse to clarify, to say, I don't want beige, I want black or white again. Those terrorists on September 11th were not people of the village, they were cosmopolitan people. They were people who lived in cities. They were people of some education. You see in the world right now, you see people who live within complicated societies, and they may respond to that complexity by accepting the complexity within themselves, or dangerously, as you're proposing, that they may be coming. People who find themselves within this complexity desiring the black and white again, the pure, and being horrified by the unclean, and beware of that in this world. These were not the thoughts on that gurney that day when you were about to be operated on for renal cancer, right? Very terrifying diagnosis. Yeah. No, those were not the thoughts. The thoughts were rather more intimate. And, you know, one of the things you confront when you confront your death is not so much the insignificance of your life, but how sweet it was and how many people loved you. And all I can tell you is that I entered a realm of blessedness that I've never experienced before, and it was real. It happened to me. And I feel rather like a mystic from a mountaintop, and you can believe me or not believe me, but my body healed. Richard Rodriguez, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for listening. Visit BillMoyers.com to learn more about the Faith and Reason series.